Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I am your host, Ben Pukulski. Today, we're going to do the deep dive on testosterone. Gentlemen, you're going to want to sit down, get out a pen and paper, and we're going deep into understanding how to optimize your testosterone. Today, Dr. Scott Howell joins me. He is a research director and the primary investigator of the Tier 1 Center for Clinical Research. He is an exercise physiologist, mechanical engineer with research interests that are spanning far and wide, specifically you know, long-term safety of therapeutic androgen use, so long-term safety of testosterone use ultimately, endocrine-disrupting chemicals like xenoestrogens, pesticides, phthalates, parabens, things like this that are ultimately endocrine disruptors, and uh, preventative medicine. And Dr. Howell is an author with uh, incredible uh, insights and research credentials uh, being reviewed in such journals as the American Journal of Physiological and Endocrinological and Metabolism, and uh, Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine, and someone who's just highly celebrated in his field. A few things from today's podcast, we talk about who should and should not be using testosterone replacement therapy, an important question to dig into. We ultimately get into the physiological pathway of testosterone, how to understand the fate of testosterone. When I consume testosterone, whether that be an injectable form, cream form, what happens to it in my body? Even if I'm if I'm someone who's natural, what's actually the pathway? What's the fate of testosterone in the body? We get in the ins and the outs of testosterone therapy with respect to genetics, estrogen, and the different types of administration. We look at the uh, f- full scope explanation. In fact, I highly suggest you head over and watch the video of this podcast, and you can do that at muscleintelligence.com slash Scott, uh, muscleintelligence.com slash Scott. And you'll get the, the video of this. And you could obviously link it over at YouTube as well. Um, and so if you're someone who is a visual learner, you're going to want to watch as he actually has a few slides that he pulls up. Um, we talk about how to make an informed decision around aromatase inhibitors and finasteride, which are ultimately estrogen blockers and DHT blockers, the two potentially negative pathways of testosterone, and some incredible shocking facts about endocrine disruptors and their impact on hormonal health of the human species. And so, gents... Um, Dig in, get comfortable, and here we go. Enjoy the podcast with Dr. Scott Allen. Just before we get into it, ladies and gents, I want to bring you a special message from our sponsor today. Bioptimizers is just knocking it out of the park with their incredible products. They keep bringing more useful and cutting-edge products to the marketplace. Head over to bioptimizers.com muscle to check out all of their products and so much more. Um, use the code MUSCLE10. Uh, you already know our unwavering trust in bioptimizers, and I highly suggest you utilize this opportunity. Enjoy the podcast. We are doing the deep dive on testosterone with Dr. Scott Howell. Sir, thank you for joining me today. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. Yeah, I've done a fair amount of research into your background, and it seems like you have potentially one of the best understandings of testosterone that I've seen. And, uh, you go in a lot of different directions, which I really appreciate. Some people tend to stay in a very specific, narrow area. It seems like you've done a, a lot of time and a lot of investment into your knowledge and education around testosterone. Thank you. It's been a passion for, well, all my life, really. Uh, and it started with my grandmother. She had uh, a thyroid cancer and she was treated with Centroid and uh, she gained a ton of body weight after she had her uh, thyroid gland removed. And I remember her going through that, and I remember going to libraries and stuff and looking uh, just for uh, books about a thyroid. And I was younger, but I, I started looking at the stuff and even suggested to my grandmother at that time that she should 
asked for the active form on T3. And so that really set me in line with a focus in on hormones and also really digging into over the past 10 years, what's really fact and fiction with anabolic steroids or any hormone in general, even the synthetic estrogens uh, that women are sometimes prescribed based on the WHI study. It's been a really eye-open experience to look at a lot of the literature it's out right now, uh, just because of um, more or less scientific fraud, uh, to be honest. And there's been over five to 10,000 papers over the past four or five years that's been retracted from the scientific literature. And so it's a big issue. And every uh, one that I talk to, I always advise to be skeptical, curious, but skeptical consumers of any information I get from anywhere. Yeah, I always say I'm an open-minded skeptic. I think, I think you have to be, right? You have to have an open mind willing to receive all the information, but realize everyone, most people have an agenda, certainly when their the job is on the line or a grant is on the line. I've actually been privy to work in a lab for a little bit of time or like be be kind of a, an assistant in a lab. And you realize that not, not everything is on the up and up. And I don't I don't really fault humans. I realize like, hey man, if it's like your family is going to eat or not, you're going to do what it takes to make your family eat. And while it's not always moral, not everyone is using that as a compass. So I appreciate you uh, bringing this to the attention of the audience. So when you speak of um, this medical fraud, what are we referring to? All the clinical research is federally funded by the United States. They have to complete the trial registers on clinicaltrial.gov. But more often than not, I would say over 95% of the time, these pharmaceutical companies don't comply with the law and they don't report the uh, point estimates of the data that they uh, collect. So consumers can go to these trial registers, even though they pay taxes and it should be there, it's not there. And so they can't, uh, uh, I can't uh, compare uh, what was found to see if, is it really more efficacious than this other drug or this other thing that's out? And the biggest point, I just uh, filed a Freedom of Information Act request uh, to obtain the full data set for the Women's Health Initiative. Because the more I found about what happened with the WHI study, there's, it's a really a terrible impact on women because a lot of women went off of hormone therapy, specifically estradiol, because they were scared of plaque ruptures, thrombosis, and things like that. And what I found when I went to the trial register for the WHI, it is not reported. But this was a part of a collaboration with the National Heart and Blood and Lung Institute, one of our uh, National Institutes of Health Centers. And so the trial register is still not reported. And so I contacted the NIH, I filed the request, and I asked for it to be an ex expedited uh, request. And the reason why I did that was because there was a study that was published in, I believe, I can't remember exactly what year, but it was in one of the most prestigious public health journals in the world. And what they estimated was that between uh, close to 20,000 women up to 90,000 women died uh, because of the estrogen avoidance due to that study. And so what happens is when these hormones are stopped abruptly, uh, they any woman will develop severe cardiovascular disease. These things happen. And when women go into menopause, they have complete ovarian failure. Their ovaries fail. These hormones are not produced in sufficient amounts. And what happens is their bone mineral density decreases. 
Uh, they the the cardiovascular disease goes through the roof, and even if you go to the CDC right now, cardiovascular disease is still uh, the largest killer in both men and women across the board. So, can you tell us what the Women's Health Initiative is? I don't know if the, the listener knows what that is. Well, uh, the Women's Health Initiative was uh, the largest uh, trial, and it was at multi centers around different areas. I, I believe some of these were. Most of these were in the U.S., but they were, in, I believe, in different countries as well, but don't quote me on that. Uh, but it was federally funded, and also pharmaceutical companies were involved with it. And basically, instead of using natural ligands uh, like estrogel and micronized progesterone, what they used was conjugated equine estrogens, um, which have 10 isoforms that are not even found in humans. They tested that really potent uh, uh, horse estrogen and women, and also medroxyprogesterone acetate, which is a synthetic uh, progestogen. And they stopped, uh, the trial was stopped early, uh, but it wasn't stopped because a, a data safety uh, monitoring board stopped it. And basically when I dug into more interviews that were done, more things that happened with this initiative, uh, they stopped it because of futility. And so they stopped it because they, in my belief, they didn't want any more harmful data uh, to come out. They just wanted to stop what the damage control was at that time. And so, but the Women's Health Initiative, it was supposed to definitively determine whether hormone replacement therapy, uh, long-term use of it was safe. And so that was it. its intent, but it conflicted um, decades of research that showed that natural estradiol, just oral estradiol, even in a tablet, along with micronized progesterone, was actually very safe. And there's uh, not any clinical trials that I found that were completed before the WHI study that were non-biased that reported any risk with those. And so it's a big issue. And the same thing happened with testosterone as well. The Traverse study just came out that showed the long-term efficacy and safety of testosterone. But even it the whole black box warning come from uh, two secondary data analysis studies by Finkel and Vegan, one in 2013 and one in 2014. And this is insurance claims that were mapped to prescriptions that were received to outcomes that happened. And it's the lowest quality of evidence that we have. And the FDA, uh, by its all right, it states that only randomized controlled trial data or meta-analyses of randomized controlled trials should be used to make decisions, but yet the black box warning was predicated on secondary data analyses. One of these actually included women in the sample, and it wasn't until uh, there was a big backlash over it being published that they actually redid the analysis. But that study is still indexed, and it's still on the JMO website. It's still there. Anyone can pull it. It should have been retracted, but <laughs> I didn't progress with that. But the Women's Health Initiative uh, was supposed to definitively answer the question whether hormone therapy was safe for a menopausal hormone therapy. Okay, so so, that, so what you're saying, just so I can summarize, is a study tried to suggest that it wasn't safe, but in reality it was. I believe so, yes. And the reason why the tra trial registers aren't reported, there's a fundamental reason for that. And so the Freedom of Information Act request that I have, and you know, it's something that I would like to get a lot of people behind. 
because we need to get over this hurdle. The women, even practitioners that I train now, they're scared of using hormone therapy in women. And it's really bizarre because these are the things that can actually increase quality of life. And I don't want to say longevity because all the boards and things, uh, those individuals hate the term longevity, uh, but it's the only thing that can truly uh, protect against cardiovascular disease, insulin resistance, obesity, abdominal fat, uh, fractures as a women age. It is fundamentally, uh, women can't get the hormone therapy that they need. And it's all because of the results that were published in that study. So shifting gears to testosterone, you said there's also some studies that are not high quality studies because they're basically based on outcomes of insurance companies that also tried to say that testosterone is also unhealthy. Is that also the case? Yes. The vegan and the fecal study. Fing, uh, the vegan study was in 2013. I believe the fecal study was in 2014. And so in your experience with testosterone supplementation or working with people or looking, coming to the research, is testosterone supplementation unhealthy? Not in fact, uh, from my perspective. It's not. Now, it can be inappropriate for some people. Sure. And it's uh, appropriate for, based on the guidelines, for those that have signs and symptoms of testosterone deficiency. But we do now have evidence, it's pretty, it's pretty expansive in the literature, showing that someone can have a normal testosterone level, be within the normal reference interval, but still be symptomatic. Yep. Um, so one of the things that you uh, put in our talking points that I would love to talk about, because nobody has ever covered this on my show, is the natural pathway of testosterone. Because I think when people start to understand that, it starts to unravel the complexity of the, of the molecule and ultimately maybe how we can intervene naturally. Because I always try to advise people to optimize their natural uh, state first. So like, where's your body fat? Where's your training? Where's your sleep? Where's your stress? Where's your nutrition? Where's your micronutrient status? Like start, not, start checking off all the basic boxes and uh, if those are in, in alignment or in, uh, you know, maybe call it a, a somewhat optimized state, oftentimes people's testosterone levels goes well beyond the natural range. Uh, and then if it's not, and you've tried, you've tried everything after six months, then no problem. Then maybe go see your endocrinologist and have it tested. But um, I think in general, I'd love to just walk through that and maybe how you think people can start to, to utilize this information to apply it and make a change. Would you like to go from the, the the very beginning with the histology of cells, cellular function, or just the pathways? Um, histology of cells would be interesting, I think. Yeah. And you will, so for the listener, you know, if you want to share some slides, people can go over to the YouTube channel and check it out. Uh, and I'm sure you'll do a great job describing it as well. So basically, uh, when we consider the anatomy of the testis, there in utero, there's a different gonad, and there's certain time points where that gets differentiated into a male gonad, which is the testis or uh, testes, and for plural, uh, the female gonad is the ovary. Uh, but the testis in men is the target reproductive organ, also the endocrine gland, uh, the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis, uh, particularly the testicular axis. And uh, each uh, a testis has two different cell types. The first is the Sertoli cells, uh, that's shown in the top right figure. And these uh, function mainly uh, to maintain developing sperm. And the Leydig cells are shown on the bottom. And one interesting uh, fact about Sertoli cells and uh, uh, the maintenance of developing sperm is that there has to be very, very high intratesticular testosterone levels, upwards of 100 times more 
than the testosterone levels that found in blood serum uh, to maintain the sperm. And when we go on testosterone therapy, if someone does that, there's a decrease in spermatogenesis. And the reason why is that exogenous testosterone cannot uh, cross the blood testis barrier. It has to be uh, produced in the Leydig cells, which have the main function of synthesizing uh, testosterone. And so, like I mentioned before in the previous slide, Sertoli cells uh, function mainly to maintain developing sperm, but they also produce what's called androgen binding protein. And this is the equivalent of SHBG uh, that's found in the blood. It's identical to the gut to that, but it's actually made in the Sertoli cells so it can sequester high amounts of testosterone and keep it there. But these cells also produce anti-malarian hormone. This is critical during utero uh, for the actual uh, dissolution of the uh, malarian duct. Uh, that's a female structure that has to go away before the wolfian duct of men will actually start to develop under the conditioning of testosterone. And so these cells express the androgen receptor, uh, follicle-stimulating hormone receptors, the aromatase enzyme, and they also increase inhibit uh, when they're stimulated uh, by follicle-stimulating hormone. And what this does is it exerts a negative feedback on the gonadotropes. And so the gonadotropes are, they're pituitary cells, dual functioning, uh, that uh, produce the gonadotropins, luteinizing hormone and follicle-stimulating uh, hormone. And so uh, in this figure uh, to the right, uh, the seminiferous tubules are surrounded by that white dotted line. Mm -hmm. And it's these interstitial compartments that are within, they surround it as well. Uh, but the, the red arrows show uh, uh, Sertoli cell clusters that surround germ cells. So uh, the Leydig cells, these are stromal cells. Uh, they function primarily uh, to produce a testosterone. That's what their function is. And they have to acquire a, a substrate of cholesterol, uh, just like any steroid hormone uh, synthesis in the body. And this can be uh, sourced from either de novo uh, cholesterol synthesis, which means new synthesis, or uh, through lipoprotein receptors. Uh, specifically, LDL receptors do this most. And so most cells in the body express these LDL receptors. And so this is critical to actually get um, uh, steroid hormones produced in different cells uh, where they're needed. Uh, sometimes it, it can be paracrine or autocrine in, in nature. And then there's a, a minor amount uh, that comes from the HDL receptors as well. After the cholesterol source, it's stored as esters and then it's converted several times in the testes uh, uh, to actually produce testosterone. And so the figure to the right uh, shows the lytic cells in the inner stitial compartment. And so that's where these are. And they are adjacent to the Sertoli cells for a reason, because uh, the testosterone that's secreted from these cells can directly diffuse into the Sertoli cells so they can be sequestered to keep those levels high. And so like previously mentioned, testosterone synthesis requires the substrate of cholesterol. It's either synthesized or required by the lytic cells it's first converted pregnenolone uh, from cholesterol, and then it's converted to several in, in metabolic intermediates, but testosterone's in the last step. And so this uh, basically shows where how a cholesterol is produced uh, by, well, it shows how it enters the cell actually, um, but the free cholesterol is produced uh, uh, through the activity of hormone-sensitive lipase.
And there's a very important protein that's common to uh, all the biosynthesis pathways called a steroidogenic acute regulatory protein. This is a star for short, but it's basically uh, what carries or transfers free cholesterol uh, to the mitochondrion. And it moves first into the outer membrane and then to the inner membrane. And so if it's LDL uh, that actually brings the cholesterol in, this will enter on the lytic cells through the LDL's receptor activity. And then the free cholesterol sh uh, shuttle to the biosynthesis pathway. It starts in the cy cytoplasm, but it ends in uh, the mitochondria. And so uh, there's five fundamental steps in the biosynthesis testosterone in the lytic cells. Uh, first, 27-carbon-contained cholesterol is converted to pregnenolone, and this uh, a pregnenolone contains 21-carbon atoms, and anything or steroid hormones that contain 21-carbon atoms are called pregnanes. And so uh, pregnenolone is then catalyzed to progesterone, which is also classified under the pregnanes. It contains 21 carbons. And this is by the three beta hydroxysteroid dehydrogenase enzyme uh, type 2. The next conversion is progesterone into 17 alpha hydroxyprogesterone, also in the pregnant class. The fourth step is when 17 alpha hydroxyprogesterone is converted to androstenedione. So now in this pathway, we get to the first of the androstenes in this pathway that contain 19 carbons. The last is when androstenedione is converted directly to testosterone, uh, which is also classed under the androstenes by the 17-beta-hydroxysteroid dehydrogenase type 3 enzyme. Now, there's other conversions, too, that move past this, because if we consider a testosterone, it has independent effects of its downstream metabolites, but it's these downstream metabolites that confer uh, a lot of the health effects or even some of the most drastic health effects uh, in both men and women. So the main source of estrogen in men uh, comes from the per peripheral aromatization of testosterone to estradiol. And this is the uh, first estrain class in this pathway. And uh, all the estrains uh, have 18 carbon atoms. And uh, this is always a converted uh, by the aromatase enzyme CYP19A1. Now, another important downstream metabolite of testosterone is DHT. It's an androstane class. It's the most potent of the endogenous androgens. And this is based off primitive uh, binding assays that showed that there was a 10 times greater affinity uh, for DHT to the androgen receptor compared to testosterone. It's now changed um, in the research. There's research chemical 1881, which is a methylated form of trimbolone. I believe it's methyltriembolone. Um, it is a, about 10 times more potent than DHT, and it's used to actually assess. It's used as the reference for binding affinity now. But uh, DHT is dependent on uh, the 5-alpha reductase, and there's different types of 5-alpha reductase that are expressed during different periods of growth and maturation. Uh, type 1 5-alpha reductase is expressed in the skin during puberty, but 5-alpha reductase 2 uh, is, is expressed during adulthood. And this is expressed in adults in the urinary tract, uh, the genitals, hair, liver, 
But interestingly, there's no expression of 5-alpha reductase type 2 at skeletal muscle. Although there's uh, some evidence that's occurring that uh, type 1 reductase might have a comparable uh, uh, effect as 5-alpha reductase 2 uh, to produce a test or DHT uh, in adulthood. Uh, but that is not, that's still up in the air. DHT is very essential for um, reproductive maturation, and it is uh, evolved considerably with the phenotypic changes that uh, we see with puberty. In the figure to the right, uh, it shows the various, um, well, it should just shows uh, the two molecules of DHT and estradiol that are actually uh, two metabolites that uh, confer many health effects. And so I uh, I don't believe in 5-alpha reductase inhibitor use in men unless they actually, it's very severe and they need it, or, and I don't believe in aromatase inhibitor use in men or women, uh, to be honest, um, and it's especially for men on testosterone therapy, because it's one of the reasons why I believe that many bodybuilders uh, uh, develop severe cardiovascular disease from long-term androgen use and then long-term aromatase inhibition. Yeah, so Dr. Hal, if we could pause right there, I would love to discuss that because I know there's a lot of guys out there who are taking 5 alpha reductase inhibitors to, to save their hair. I know there's a lot of guys out there taking uh, Romadase inhibitors to um, block their estrogen. So if you want to kill that slide, I'd love to just chat about that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sure. There we go. Yeah, so let's talk about that because I actually had a guy two days ago say he's been taking 5 alpha reductase for five years. And I was like, if that's not so good. And I, I've come to know recently how potentially detrimental things like anastrozole are, uh, although I'll confess I took it for many years and um, I didn't know, right? You're just, you're just kind of following the bodybuilding lore, the, the blind leading the blind. So if we could dissect both of those and explain to our audience maybe why they would want to avoid it, or if there's a context where they may want to use it. Okay. Well, uh, with aromatase inhibitors, I don't think that, I don't believe that these should be used for any reason. Uh, in men on testosterone therapy, uh, point blank, um, they were developed uh, as adjuv adjuvant therapies for breast cancer patients. Yeah. And so if you look at the data just on women that have used these for extended periods of time, uh, after about five years of use, uh, their bone mineral density is already tanked. And by the end of 10 years of use, they have uh, moderate to severe cardiovascular disease. And so if the breast cancer doesn't kill a woman, uh, a aromatase inhibitor will eventually. But in men, what it causes is diffuse collagen infiltration into the myocardium of the heart because estradiol, leave the beta receptors, have a protective function in mammals. And so that aromatase enzyme uh, co-evolved with the androgen receptor and the evolutionary uh, theorists think that they, they, they evolved for the same to confer protection to all organ systems. So when we block estrogen, um, it has drastic effects. But if you look at the um, forensic reports, uh, the case studies where there's histology, all these have diffuse fibrosis, and that's the end stage of collagen infiltration. And once there's a loss of conduction velocity, it's what I believe has led to sudden cardiac death, just when the heart stops yep. in these individuals. So is it the molecule itself or is it the blocking of the estrogen? It's the blocking of the estrogen. Hmm. So if someone's taking it in a low dose where the estrogen still is present, but not 
massively elevated, it may not be as bad. I would say theoretically, but at the same time, uh, even estrogen symptoms, and it's something that I uh, have towards uh, later towards the end with the Taylor trial analysis, estrogen symptoms don't express in men with high levels. They actually express when estradiol is low. And the thresholds of this trial data established how low it can get. Now, I'm on oral estrogen, and I've been on oral estrogen for quite a while for the health benefits. And I'm on testosterone therapy, too. I've never experienced a single estrogen symptom while on estradiol, oral estradiol therapy. What dose? Two milligrams. Daily? Day. And so you're taking yes. that for the cardiovascular benefits and brain benefits? Yes. Mm-hmm. How long has that been? I've been on estradiol therapy for over six months now. Hmm. I, I started at one time before, went on it for over a year, and then I came off of it because I moved. Uh, but for the past six months, I've been on it consistently. What benefit have you have you seen subjectively? Obviously, objectively, your your serum testosterone estrogen is going up, but boys, uh, cardiovascular wise, my uh, uh, serum lipids have improved. Uh, where I used to be below 39 all the time, I'm into the 45 to 47 range. And also the LDL has dropped consistently. And the subfractions have evened out as well is probably the best lipid profile uh, that I've ever had. Interesting. And as far as like your energy, your mood, your focus, anything different there, more or less the same? No, it's more or less the same. I, I haven't... I, luckily, when I went through uh, my lifting phase and experimented with anabolic steroids and stuff like that. I never used aromatase inhibitors. I never did for uh, one reason or another, but I never used them. And so it's sort of foreign to me. I know that a lot of people that start using aromatase inhibitors, especially when they're put directly on testosterone, what eventually happens is if they're um, told to phlebotomize too often, they end up, uh, uh, if they take uh, the aromatase inhibitor can uh, consistently on a dose schedule, they have erectile dysfunction problems. And also, um, there was another thing I was going to mention, and it just went out. Oh, they develop iron deficiency anemia. And so, the iron deficiency anemia, if you phlebotomize uh, before that 120 uh, day window for a red cell, then you could cause massive problems. It's one of the reasons why I don't advocate uh, phlebotomizing while on testosterone therapy. It's a natural process of erythrocytosis. Well, what if someone's hematocrit is getting next sky high or their, or their iron mark is getting sky high? Well, uh, what you see in the actual literature uh, that's actually looked at this, uh, there's many disorders where hematocrit goes above 65, even with pulmonary hypertension guidelines. They only recommend phlebotomizing if it goes past 65 and also there's signs of hyperviscosity syndrome. And what I mean by that is someone is getting cyanotic or they're having intense headaches where they can't uh, function. Then that's uh, um, permitted. But the whole practice of phlebotomy uh, was not directed because of testosterone therapy. What it was recommended for, and actually the year of my birth in 1978, it was first suggested that it might be beneficial for polycythemia vera patients, which is a blood cancer that influences three different cell types. And so since that time, it was adopted with polycythemia vera patients. It's been applied to any type of increase in hematocrit. And with testosterone, there's only an increase in red cells. 
And when it goes up, there's an increased hematocrit. Actually, the hemodynamics are more favorable. But obviously, there's a window with the guidelines of what they talk about and what they recommend. And so uh, my thing is, if there's a drastic, you know, someone's hematocrit's high, uh, if it's higher than 51, if it's uh, 51 when they start, right at the cutoff. When they go on testosterone, it's going to increase above that. And so, um, do I think that it's safe for otherwise healthy individuals to have an increase of hematocrit three to four points? Yes, I believe so. And that's based on all the studies that I've looked through and, and I can send, uh, uh, some of the studies so people can see, uh, but, um, uh, that's my stance on, on hematocrit. Interesting. Yeah. So I think there's. There's a lot of confusion there, right? Because I think it would depend how high the person's numbers go. What if someone's numbers are very high, like maybe higher than 65 or the ferritin is off the chart? Any thought there on? Well, what I found, well, um, definitely you want somebody to take a look if other parameters of your blood are changing. Uh, definitely if there's a, a thrombophilia, um, most people that have a genetic thrombophilia will know it very early on, but there can be acquired thrombophilias as yeah, well. Thrombophilia. It's a, a blood disorder. It's any type of blood disorder that uh, it, where there's a deficiency or overabundance of clotting factors, hmm. usually. Yeah. Interesting. And so I've, I've heard some, I don't know, this is probably outside the realm of your expertise, but I'm curious. I've heard some interesting approaches to something like hemochromatosis, where your body's just accumulating um, high amounts of iron, and people say we should give blood, and other people say it's a terrible idea. Some people say a carnivore diet is the solution, which sounds counterintuitive, but apparently people's ferritin and iron numbers are dropping. Do you have any experience with that? Well, not specifically uh, with hemochromatosis, but if that's an issue, uh, when I always advise any patient that uh, comes to any of our clinicians, I always advise our clinicians, if it's outside of the scope, this needs to be resolved before someone goes to therapy. Mm -hmm. Interesting. There's going to be bodybuilders out there, like myself, who are stupid and just do whatever they're told to do, right? All the top bodybuilding coaches in the world, 100% of them are going to tell you to take an anti-estrogen, 100%. And so I took it for probably eight years, not not consistently, but like during the last three months before a contest, I would take at least an estrogen, often a Remedec, aromacin, and I didn't know any better. And so the, the trickle down was... Hey man, Ronnie Coleman's taking this. You should take it too. And uh, so that's that's the bodybuilding stupidity. And and I didn't know any better. And I certainly didn't have a better resource. So I was like, well, okay, I guess like I, my goal was like I just want to be the best. And uh, in the moment, you're like, I'm going to do whatever it takes to be the best. It's not intelligent, but I also didn't have a better source. So in in case of someone who's you know taking a, a super physiological amount of testosterone and maybe uh, expecting, or they're, they're trying to get to what I call subhuman levels of body fat, like I want to get to under 4% body fat, people are seeing the benefit of an astrogel, aromacin, maybe even, what are the other ones, I forget the name, to, to ultimately drop their uh, estrogen and maybe, maybe influencing body fat stores. Have you seen how it influences body fat? Is there any data on it, uh, anecdotally or, or otherwise? And uh, what does someone do in that case? Well, the data that I've found is that estradiol is also essential for lipolysis, and it also increases nitrogen retention. If you look at the feedlot studies of animals, yeah. uh, when a potent androgen is coupled with estrogen, then the actual lean feed weight will be larger. But as far as a lipolysis, when uh, 
uh, menopausal women, uh, when they reach menopause and they don't go on estrogen, it's the lack of estrogen that drives their visceral adiposity. Hmm. Now, as far as like dropping water, in my mind, it would be uh, more efficacious to either uh, modulate the 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 sodium intake and things like that and know where a person stands when they're going in or to take a diuretic, which I don't really suggest because uh, people are so inexperienced with that. And a lot of things can happen very quickly that can't be reversed. Yeah, I agree. And, and so anyone who's ever taken anti-estrogen will, will all agree that you feel like shit and you look like shit and your body gets really flat. So you're correct in saying like there's, there's certainly a uh, a decrease in um, you know just cellular volumization. I, pro- I probably I thought we stopped my fat loss slowed down, but like a good student at the time, you know, toward the end of my career, I was like, no, I'm not doing any of this stuff. Early in my career, I just followed what my coach said uh, until I started learning more about it. And even toward the end of my career, I still used it, but I was coaching myself, so I'd use less. But there's, there's just so much misinformation, and so I'd love to. This is why I, I do what I do is I want to get to the bottom of it because there's young bodybuilders and, and, and older bodybuilders dying. Uh, unnecessarily or they're ill experiencing cardiovascular problems because of just like stupidity and we still have any better information one way that i can characterize this and i'm really i'm really interested and i I appreciate your passion for that because it's uh this whole issue with estrogen and blocking uh, aromatase is something that i was on social media for a long time and i kept on saying these things over and over and there was only one or two individuals that would listen to what i was saying um but when we put men on testosterone, if we consider the effects of all androgens, they are mineral retensive, meaning that you will retain sodium, uh, you will retain nitrogen. Those are the two big hitters. But if the aromatization process is allowed to go unimpeded, it's not like estradiol goes up exponentially and keeps going. It's rate limited by the amount of the aromatase enzyme that a person expresses. So when you reach your genetic ceiling for the aromatase enzyme, estradiol levels don't keep going up. And so when guys see their estradiol levels go up, they sort of get all crazy about it. But if you let it reach the aromatization threshold, uh, then the water reduction goes down on men on testosterone. That's really around about eight weeks or so. And that's even been de- demonstrated in the dose response trials. We have trial data uh, to look at. And you can see the older men, it takes them longer uh, to reach their threshold, but they get there and it doesn't go on continually. Yeah. And so how about finasteride? So um, a lot of men, many men are like, I don't lose my hair. I don't lose my hair. What, what, what do men do who are you know, taking you know, either, either TRT levels or super physiological levels and maybe experiencing some hair loss? Because I'll tell you, mine... Uh, I had a full head of hair until I it didn't. It was like that. And I think I know what happened, but uh, I was like, should I be taking finasteride? Should I not? You know, one of my advisors like, like don't take it. It's going to it's gonna do other things to your body. So I didn't. And then I did some research and I realized it wasn't the healthiest thing for you. So I'm curious why you suggest not taking it and then what someone might do who's experiencing um, DHT conversion. Well, in general, I, I really feel uncomfortable blocking any of the natural ligands in the body. And so, oh, any, if someone's taking super physiological levels, there's going to likely be a response, right? Yes, and there will be. Now, are some ju- uh, justified? Well, if you take a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor uh, systemically, you take it orally, it gets distributed throughout the body. In my mind, uh, the best option is to do something topical where it's just local. And so it doesn't have the other effects and other tissues. That would be uh, the main uh, suggestion for that. And also we have to consider if there's a genetic component. 
a lot of times, uh, regardless of what's done, the hair is going to come out anyway. <laughs> One thing you mentioned is, is dropping estrogen is going to drop bone mineral density, and that's interesting. So if, are we pulling calcium out of the bones? Is it directly being deposited into the arteries because of just the the, pre- the presence and the prevalence of it? Because so what this is, you can you can fact check this on me. And and so what I've, what I've heard suggested actually by Jay Campbell, and I don't, Jay, he said there's um, these, these anti-estrogens are causing micro blistering of the vascular network. And then the calcium seems to be a response to the micro blistering where the calcium is almost acting like a mortar where it's going to come along and like fill the fill the, the damage done to the uh, vascular network. And again, I, I've, not, I've never seen the data on it, but this is what Jay suggests. Any thoughts on that? Well, I, as far as uh, taking calcium uh, just from bone in that accelerating the process, I, I don't have it. I don't know of any data right now that I have would lead to a direct me- mechanism for that to occur, but basically any calcium from the bloodstream or anything like that uh, um, uh, could be involved, but it's just not an area that I've looked at. So any any suggestions then on what to do with elevated DHT? To be honest with a men that are on testosterone therapy, I, I don't recommend measuring the estradiol levels or the DHT levels because they're downstream metabolites. And if the dose of testosterone is sufficient, it's being converted compared based on the enzyme expression they have in their body. And so as their health parameters improve, actually, if uh, a lot of uh, bodybuilders, they have a tanked SHBG, yeah. but higher SHBG levels in both men and women are uh, directly correlated with uh, better health parameters across the board. Yep. Fascinating. How about um, gynecomastia? So if a guy's getting gynecomastia, I know there's multiple mechanisms on how that can influence that. Um, it, what I've heard suggested is is like, hey man, if you got the genes for it, you're gonna get it, go get it cut out and then it'll never come back. But I'm curious if you have any uh, advice on on people getting gynecomastia from testosterone use. Well, uh, what's often seen in clinical practice is uh, what is called pseudo-gynecomastia. It's not real genetic gynecomastia, it's sensitivity of the nipples nostalgia. Now, aromatase inhibitors can work for this. Usually if, uh, if someone toughs it through, until the aromatization process is over, uh, that nipple sensitivity will go away. Now, as far as long-term solutions, if it is uh, larger really than a quarter and it's a little bit bigger, then surgical excision is the only uh, thing that's going to be a long-term. But they have to, when surgeons go in, they have to, I would recommend so when someone go to an experienced surgeon that they have that to make sure that all the tissue is excised. Um, it's super common in bodybuilders. I had it done 2007, and uh, yeah, I've had success since. Um, but still, like when you can avoid surgery, avoid surgery. In my in my opinion, like you know, how do we how do we advise bodybuilders or people who are aspiring to be bodybuilders to one not destroy their health and ultimately do this in the most effective way possible? Because you know they're not going to stop, right? I, I worked with a lot of young aspiring bodybuilders, and no matter how much I, I scream at them to stop being stupid and do all, doing all the things that they're told to do. They're gonna fall. It's it's this interesting paradigm. You'll get this in bodybuilding. They go from coach to coach to coach to to look for the the magical stack. They're like, hey, this coach over here, he gets everybody in really good shape. He must have a magical stack. They don't realize that the magical stack is some combination of genetics and hard work. And sometimes it's an excessive amount of, of steroids, but oftentimes it's like the guys who are doing really well are just genetically blessed, or, or maybe they have some incredible work ethic, or you know maybe they're really disciplined on their diet and their cardio, but. Um, there's no magic stack, right? And, and guys are always looking. Oh, this guy, this bodybuilder took this stuff. I took this much, and and that that's becomes the the guiding factor for guys. 
Well, I, what I found, even with harm reduction consultations I've done with bodybuilders before, I've only really had success with one uh, high-level bodybuilder to actually transition from high-dose stuff. And this was a fellow that I had went into heart failure at an early age, right around 18 years old, because he had been using so much stuff even before that. It's one of the things that unless there's drastic health consequences, some people won't wake up. But usually, based on the data from uh, Skip Pope and the Harvard group, about a third of all individuals that start using anabolic steroids uh, will not stop, uh, regardless of legal consequences, health consequences, or otherwise. Yeah. Um, I had both legal consequences in my mind and uh, had children, and that was the only thing that made me stop. I would have kept going for sure. Um, and I and you know I was very blessed. I called them my angels every day because they saved my life. And, and I was on this trajectory. I was like, I'm going to be the best in the world. And I was not thinking about anything else. It didn't matter. I did, you don't you don't think about health when you're in. I, I do at a level, but you're so close, right? You're like, I can smell the top. I'm top seven, top eight in the world, and I can smell the top. And I just want to get to the top. But you don't think about consequences while you're in it. Uh, but looking back on my career, you know, now having been removed for, you know, effectively 2013, I retired in 2016, but 2013 was kind of when I was on top. Um, looking back on it, I did so many things that are ultimately negatively impacting my health now. And that's why I'm on this this uh, mission to help guys and ultimately correct my health as much as possible, reverse any of the damage I did, and ultimately hopefully help thousands, if not millions of people not make stupid mistakes. I admire that. Uh, there's a few voices out. And one of the local voices here, I don't know if you know him, is Matt Davis. He's really big here about promoting health, taking back health uh, with yeah. bodybuilders. Um, but it's it's good to hear that. It's really good to hear it. Yeah. And again, I didn't know, right? Like, So one of the first things I remember asking um, one of my role models, my mentors, was like, are you worried about your health? And he got mad at me. He yelled at me. He's like, what, why, do you, why would I be worried about health? And then not within two years, he died. And that was an interesting, so I was like, oh, sorry. Like I was just honestly asking as, as an inquisitive kid, like, what do I do? How do I support myself? How do I support my health? Uh, and just nobody had answers, man. Nobody nobody wanted to support. Everyone was more worried about how can we make you the best bodybuilder possible and not worried about like, hey, let's take the slow road, man. Like you can get there maybe, but like be patient. And everyone wants to win now. And I was like, what if it was, what if it took you 10 years and you still did it and you could use a fraction and not not kill yourself? Would that be worth it, right? Could you? What if you could live to be ninety or hundred and still be an exceptional bodybuilder? Like it may not be possible. To be honest, I'm not sure. That that's really the goal, and I think I hope that science catches up with it, right? I hope science is at the point where we can quantify and, and test and, and put the forth data that says, hey, here's here's how to correct the damage that you've done, and here's how to not continue to make damage. Well, see, the worst thing is that some damage is irreversible, even though there's been reversibility studies about with uh, like anabolic steroid-induced hypogonadism, uh, some of the cardiac parameters, uh, they will reverse over time. Uh, but as soon as the higher doses come back, or if you have the genetic condition, they're exacerbated across the board. And there's just some damage that cannot be undone. And so uh, one of the things that I've always used when I lecture about it is if you have a heart that is built for a 180-pound frame, Okay, and you continually put on the muscle mass until uh, you would be clinically obese if it was fat weight, and instead it's muscle weight. That's still increasing the afterload continually, even at rest on your heart. Yeah. And so, uh, some of those things over time, obviously, they have to be uh, bad. But uh, I regress on that. Yeah. I'm so sorry to take it off track, but I think it's a useful conversation to make people aware of. Um, I'd love to just bring it back to. 
maybe talking about some of the best practices around, or, or maybe help helping people understand more about testosterone. You know, one of the things that you brought up there briefly was um, erectile dysfunction, and I'm curious. Uh, or actually, before we go that, in that direction, I'd love to talk about the hypogonadism. And like you said, that may not be reversible. I know that, that was actually the slide you put up first there around the cellular function and the latex cells producing testosterone and the Sertoli cells sequestering the testosterone. Um, and sometimes if, this, if the LH and FSH are so low, the latex just stop producing. So you just won't, your, your spermatogenesis will effectively stop. Yes. Let me pull this up. Well, the, uh, the point about that is that uh, there's a blood testis barrier. And so it, the exogenous testosterone that we take on treatment can actually get into the Sertoli cell. It has to be made by the Leydig cell. Well, when we take testosterone therapy, that shuts down the axis. Mm -hmm. And so there's no stimulation there for those cells. So one way uh, that individuals uh, can um, try to keep that stimulation or actually maintain fertility is to use human chorionic gonadotropin and HCG, which you're familiar with. With these, This is the causes. Um, did you want me to just discuss um, that process more or uh, caveats of testosterone therapy? Uh, caveats sounds great. There we are. I put this in here um, because uh, testosterone therapy across the board increases, it maintains uh, lean body mass, it maintains red cell mass, which is very important uh, for endurance capacity, especially as we go, grow older. Uh, bone mineral density, sex drive, reproductive behavior, cardiovascular health, quality of life, also positive mental health status. You know, uh, testosterone has been used to treat refractory depression in men. And so uh, testosterone has wide utility yeah, across many uh, different areas. But in, in all men, it will increase overall sense of well-being. So I think just just pausing right there to kind of bring this back to the the positive side of testosterone, right? Because you know I, I kind of took it on this path of like the exogenous, uh, super physiological, like very high dosages that are used in bodybuilding, definitely being negative. And, and and so now we're bringing it back to saying, hey, but hold on a minute. If if guys want to optimize the way they look, feel, perform, and ultimately even their health, it sounds testosterone actually may be a very useful um, consideration. However, there will definitely be a point of diminishing returns, a tipping point if there's an excessive amount used because of just the body's inability to use it and causing a whole slew of negative side effects. Well, that's uh, usually the rate limiting uh, conditions with uh, testosterone therapy or side effects that happen. Uh, but as far as the actual action of androgens in the body, uh, androgen receptors will upregulate in a dose response. It has been uh, demonstrated for a bit for the past 40 years, but it's been actually confirmed in a randomized control trial in the yeah. dose response. It's but, it's, it's uh, miraculous. I, I think like nothing short of life-changing, the influence of testosterone. And I don't want to oversell it, but I think for guys who are living the, light of, the life of quiet desperation and, and not feeling motivated and not feeling uh, androgenic, not feeling assertive, uh, masculine, like the difference that you see is just unbelievable. Like it's it's phenomenal. So I think what we look at is well, how do we not experience the side effects? Well, I think uh, the way that uh, anyone that uh, number one uh, testosterone is not for everyone. Mm -hmm. There's not a one uh, size fits all approach. Uh, some men um, they need more testosterone than others, and usually it's older men. And mm -hmm. uh, there's a, uh, a decreased sensitivity, but it's not so clear 
uh, that that is related to the androgen receptors. I believe there's more processes going on, like insulin resistances, stuff like that. Yeah. But uh, if basically, if someone has true testosterone deficiency, once they have that replaced, it's almost like having a new life. Their whole outlook is completely shifted uh, from what they felt like a week prior to that. And I, some modes of administration work faster than others. But regardless, when men get testosterone from whatever source, if they're truly uh, deficient, um, they will have uh, substantial uh, changes. Uh, but the therapy, all the guidelines state that anyone with testosterone deficiency, uh, that um, the only people to be treated with testosterone are adult men with signs and symptoms of testosterone deficiency. Now, part of the guidelines, they advise serial testing in the morning. Now, is that that's per the, the guidelines? Now, do some men disqualify for treatment based on those guidelines? I say yes, uh, because obviously uh, that's going to restrict more people, but it is appropriate for adult men with signs and symptoms of testosterone deficiency, uh, previous anabolic steroid users that just want to come off synthetic androgens, want to take responsibility for their health, and they have anabolic steroid induced hypogonadism. Uh, there's some uh, research to show that uh, depending on the duration that a person has been on androgens, this suppression uh, doesn't fully resolve if it ever does. Also, although there's no guidelines, adult women with sexual dysfunction and libido issues, it's appropriate for them. Although there's no guidelines here, there have been guidelines established or recommendations in Europe. Now, those that I feel it's not appropriate for are as doc. Uh, men that are going to doctor shop for cruising doses in between anabolic steroid cycles. Um, any athletes, per the guidelines, it's restricted. Any athletes uh, that want to use testosterone for muscle mass performance enhancement. And I state that men that chronically use aromatase inhibitors are CIRMs. And the reason is uh, uh, basically what I've told you already about uh, the aromatase inhibitors and what they actually do. Um, you won't get the full benefit out of testosterone if you use these for your health. And because estradiol mediates probably the bulk of beneficial effects beyond libido and things like estradiol is even essential for a libido. Yeah. So also a big qualifier here, it might not be appropriate for men who want to conceive. And so if men are wanting to conceive, uh, want to have uh, kids, it may not be appropriate for them. And so what I recommend in any patients that uh, come to a clinic or, or uh, talk to our clinicians is that first, you need to ensure that you have viable sperm in the beginning or banker sperm if you want to have like a fail-safe mechanism in place. Yeah. Uh, but usually, actually, I've seen several, uh, many instances where individuals come off testosterone therapy for a while, uh, then they start to conceive with a, a help from uh, a HCG or some other things, and then uh, they go back on the testosterone therapy. But, but that's an issue that is, if there's predictable effects, a spermatogenesis is suppressed every time an exogenous androgen is used. Other situations that it might not be appropriate is men with severe diseases like active prostate cancer, breast cancer, and per the black box warning, uh, which I really uh, don't align to, of severe cardiovascular disease, thrombotic disease, and obviously if there's a prolactinoma, but these are, that prolactinoma comes with a standard prolactin check. So if it turns out and it's high, they can be referred. And the last is um, those that are focused on moment-to-moment -moment feelings. 
And I say this because um, the hardest group that I've ever dealt with with testosterone therapy has been younger men, uh, just because uh, they think about moment-to-moment feelings and can never get out of that. Mm. And they're not patient. So their expectations about what they've been told about testosterone, it's going to work immediate. It's going to do this. It's going to do that. Um, it Hormones don't stop working. People do. And that's what I state uh, every time that I have a conversation with a patient or anyone. And you it. put the work in and you allow it enough time, you will have resolution if you're truly deficient. Right. I love that. So the negatives, uh, testosterone therapy leads to predictable mineral retention, uh, nitrogen and sodium, uh, but also the suppression and spermatogenesis. And this is because uh, the intratesticular testosterone levels drop below what the Sertoli cells need to maintain the sperm. And the other effect is erythrocytosis. Now, this is a discussion that you need to have directly with your practitioner uh, because it's usually if there's a rate of change or a percentage as you go above baseline when you go into treatment, if uh, you're concerned about that type of stuff, uh, then uh, you could have a conversation about phlebotomy at that time. Uh, what I do not recommend doing is if it goes just uh, maybe a, a, a short bit above 51 or two or three, that you immediately uh, phlebotomize uh, because the beneficial effect of the added uh, oxygenation capacity, especially in older individuals, has a prolonged, it has a profound effect. So, so that's something that uh, should be discussed directly with the practitioner. Possible issues, uh, this is based on weak e- evidence, but it's somewhere common, is acne, a pseudogynecomastia, which is really nostalgia, uh, alopecia, and increased libido. Ooh. Who wouldn't want that, all right? But the, yeah, definitely. Um, the black box warning was based on vegan and Finkel, and it basically is the risk of stroke, a myocardial infarction, and venous thromboembolism. However, uh, the Traverse trial results were just published that uh, established the long-term safety that hasn't been argued about. Um, since it's been published, I'm sure it's there's arguments in the literature coming on about it now, uh, but uh, that's the black box warning. Do I believe that any of those are going to happen in otherwise healthy individuals? No, I do not. If there's a, a trauma, that's usually what leads to uh, a, a embolism, uh, but beyond that, I'll, I'll leave it there. And the other thing is about uh, estrogen symptoms. A lot of individuals are just so focused on estrogen symptoms, that is uh, what they want aromatase inhibitors for. But the Taylor trial analysis established thresholds for these symptoms in men and found that they were not due to increased estradiol, but rather they were due to low estradiol levels. And it's one of the reasons why I recommend that aromatase inhibitors should never be used and just allow the aromatization process to normalize. And so I put this on here because I want people to see it uh, because I get <laughs> hammered with it all the time. But uh, basically, this was analysis of uh, two sequential trials that was pre-planned. And uh, the whole issue here was to determine the contributions of testosterone and estradiol deficiency to these symptoms in hypogonadal men. And basically, um, it happened in a single uh, academic medical center and included healthy men that were between the ages of 20 to 25 
with normal serum testosterone levels. And so what they did was in this one a trial, which they labeled here as a cohort, had almost 200 men, they received a GnRH agonist, gosarolin acetate, every four weeks to shut down their axis and make them hypogonadal. And then they were randomized to either placebo or 1.25, 2.55, or 10 grams of testosterone gel daily for 16 weeks. The second trial, or cohort two, had right over 200 men, and they received the same regimen as the first cohort, except they added the nastrozole to block the aromatization process testosterone. And then they had controls, and they received a placebo uh, for both of uh, the injected hormones. And so the outcome measure here was the incidence of visits with these symptoms, and it was a pre-planned analysis. And so what but they can found- you t- Can you tell me what that molecule is? Sorry, gosarillin, go- 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 I'm not sure what that is. Uh, that's a GnRH agonist, gonadotropin-releasing hormone. And so GnRH is secreted from the hypothalamus to stimulate the pituitary gonadotropes uh, to uh, produce the gonadotropins, which are dumped into the blood. So that's going to that's gonna shut it down? Yes, because if you take a potent GnRH agonist, uh, especially uh, up to up to four weeks, and depending on what the pharmacokinetics of that are, uh, it doesn't have the agonist action when it's used chronically. And so if it goes over a certain period, then it reverses in function and becomes an antagonist and actually drives it down. Is, is, so when we talk about GHRH, is that like a... Like a- Clolophene, uh, HEG, or is that something completely different? No, uh, GnRH, the actual hormone, is gonadotropin-releasing hormone. Right. So would there be any like commonly used substance that would, would do that? I, I'm not familiar with like, I'm not familiar with that, uh, if that's typically used in, or, or why it was used in this case, or, or, or where that may be used in well, typical. A luprolide is the main drug that's made directly from gonadotropin-releasing hormone. Okay, and why would somebody use that clinically? Well, that's usually, uh, that's used clinically in prostate cancer patients. Got it. Too. Okay. Got it. Got it. Understood. So basically, they use that GnRH agonist. It shuts down the axis, and then uh, that creates a hypogonadal state, and then they put the testosterone back in, or placebo. And then in the other group, uh, they, uh, the other group had uh, all both the, uh, the GnRH agonist or uh, testosterone or placebo, but also had a nastrozole added in. And so one group had a nastrozole and testosterone, the other group just had testosterone. It's so what they found was that uh, the symptoms were reported at 26% of visits in cohort one and 35% of visits in cohort two. And so the, the second cohort was what added the aromatase inhibitor in. The first cohort didn't have aromatase inhibitors. And so uh, this demonstrated the effect of the estradiol deficiency. And when they compared uh, the adjacent estradiol groups in cohort one, uh, the largest difference in these symptoms uh, was observed between uh, 5 to 9.9 uh, picograms per milliliter, that group, and the 10 to 14.9 picogram per milliliter group. <clears throat> and so they used these reference ranges uh, to establish thresholds that the, uh, those symptoms actually occur. 
vasomotor symptoms? And, uh, vasomotor symptoms are uh, those um, in, in women, these can be hot flashes. It can be related to uh, uh, fluid retention. It can be related to um, fluid disturbances, things like that. And so they're um, basically, they're similar between men and women, uh, but they're more drastic in women at menopause. Okay, got it. And uh, the second cohort um, that had the aromatase inhibitor, what they found was that in the 10-gram testosterone group, it differed in the vasomotor symptoms uh, compared to placebo, uh, 16 versus 43%. So the... Um, Hey, even after adjusting for the differences in the estradiol levels, uh, this showed that high testosterone uh, levels uh, can suppress vasomotor symptoms. And so this is even with uh, an aromatase inhibitor, but I don't want this to be interpreted in uh, that that's the way it should be. Uh, that also means that if you don't use an aromatase inhibitor, you're, you're not going to have any symptoms of estradiol deficiency. And so these symptoms, they really express the thresholds that were ex uh, expressed uh, for adult men are, are below 14.9 picograms per milliliter. And so the real symptoms, estrogen symptoms people will, men will experience, uh, come when it drops based on the trial data, when it drops below 14.9 uh, picograms per milliliter. Understood. Perfect. And so other negatives with uh, testosterone replacement, testosterone therapy, if it's transdermal, will improve the lipid profile. It will increase HDL, it will lower LDL, uh, but the lipid effects vary by the mode of administration, especially with esterized testosterone. Now, this effect is minimal in some individuals, uh, but it, it uh, can be moderate in other individuals. And with esterized testosterone, um, it can decrease HDL cholesterol and increase LDL cholesterol due to the metabolism of the ester. And what this does is it interferes with the liver, uh, um, in, uh, specifically it increases lipoprotein lipase and hepatic lipase. And so this underpins uh, what happens with the different modes of administration, but transdermal across the board will improve the lipid profile. Now, That's interesting. So we should, we should we should spend a minute to just like get that get that message across because uh, meaning if you're taking it transdermally in a, in a gel, your HDL goes up, your LDL goes down. That's good. If you're taking an injectable because it's esterized, it will drop your LDL and increase your HDL, which is theoretically bad. Yes. Yes, but here's one. I want to qualify this. From my experience of what I've seen over thousands and thousands of labs, is that. It doesn't lead uh, to HDL decreases in all individuals. There are some polymorphisms with yep. the P450 enzymes in the liver, but for most individuals, uh, their HDL uh, will drop a few points. Some of it's not drastic; others it goes down further, and the HDL or the LDL fraction increases. But I've never, I haven't, I do not see this when it's on creams, really. Now, the gels are, are really fast acting, and I don't really recommend that mode of administration because, number one, the dose is typically uh, not high enough, but creams are, I mean, like a Versa-based cream, are, are more effective. Like a 10%? Uh, well, it would be uh, some of the stuff is compounded at, um, at 200 milligrams per gram, 
And so it's a higher dose that's used with the uh, transdermal if it's a cream just because of the rapid metabolism of testosterone without estrogen. Once it hits yeah. the bloodstream, it's it's uh, metabolized very quickly. Fantastic. That's such valuable information. This is this is great as well. I'd love for you to go with the how much, how often. One of the things that I was um, I, going to talk about was uh, uh, very severe declines in men's uh, testosterone levels. Mm -hmm. And uh, so this reference range that you see on the slide uh, was not like this. It was different. And in 2017, the upper range uh, was over 1,200 and the lower range was over 300. But this is the uh, testosterone uh, range for total testosterone, 264 to 916 nanograms per deciliter. The free range is uh, between 9.3 and 26.5 picograms per milliliter. The estradiol range in men is up to 42.6 picograms per milliliter just with lab core assays, but there's no uh, DHT range that's been set, and I really I don't feel it's that useful in men. Now, with a transport, I know this was something that was um, uh, uh, mentioned in one of the points. Testosterone is transported uh, roughly 60% bound to SHBG, and that SHBG also bonds up 20 to 40% of serum estradiol. 38% uh, is bound loosely to albumin, and it's only around 2% that's in the free fraction. And based on the free hormone hypothesis, it is only the free hormone that can go in to actually have its effects freely diffused into target tissues. Now, there's some caveats to there because um, we've found a new information, but it's too much to discuss on, on this podcast right now. But it generally is a target. Good clinicians will look at the free fraction of testosterone, and they're more focused on that free fraction if they're smart because it's what correlates with symptoms because the total does not. And so uh, that is, um, I don't want to get to actual target therapeutic range, ranges on a podcast, but as long as the free fraction is sufficient, I have yet to see a one man that has, a single man that hasn't responded to the therapy once the free fraction is within range. And so, again, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. It has to be tailored, and it's based on the person. I recommend that every person that wants to go into hormones have a genetic analysis done. And even in harm reduction consultations with uh, bodybuilders, I always have them to do a genetic test so I can try to quantify what their genetic risk is. Because uh, genetics load the gun, but lifestyle factors and environmental exposures pull the trigger on that. Yeah. Can you talk so, about that? Can we talk about what genes you're looking at specifically? And, um, yeah, like what, how we would have someone navigate that? Sure. Well, um, this is the, some of the stuff I've looked at uh, or put up for the clinical response. The main thing is about, is in the middle of the slide, it's called the androgen receptor gene CAG repeat polymorphism. It's mutation um, and it varies in length from individual to individual. The shorter links are, uh, shorter links of the CAG repeat have a stronger action in the body. Uh, with testosterone therapy. This was confirmed by Zitzman. Uh, longer links uh, lead to less androgen receptor uh, activity and kind of dysfunction, really. And once it gets past about 35 to 40 repeats, this actually leads to 
disorders like Kennedy's disease. And so how are, we me- how are we measuring that? I don't think that's a common understanding. So people are androgen receptor gene, CAG, CAG uh, repeats. Is that something you could see on your genetics or do we have to look deeply at uh, epigenetics or where are we seeing that? Well, this would be, um, this uh, would not be in a typical assay like for on 23andMe, self-decode, any of those platforms. Some predicts, uh, some SNPs are predictive. Uh, but this uh, CAG repeat is one of the, uh, it is the major mutation that I've found that infects sensitivity to androgens. Those that have the shorter repeat will respond uh, to, to androgens uh, very quickly and better. And usually if that's below uh, 20 is when that really starts to ramp up. And when it gets longer, um, and if there's a, it decreases uh, the androgen action and it leads to pathology on the other continuum. Now, this would have to be due through uh, a, a PCR analysis. Uh, but uh, what I'm trying to do now with the uh, um, uh, the company that I'm working for is to uh, have a bunch of assays that are ready to go for men that want to see if they have a shorter CAG repeat and they're more responsive to testosterone. What, what uh, company is that, Scott? What do you work with? Uh, Optimize You Medical Centers. But that's one. Now, other things that I look at um, is... So, is just, just sorry, just to come back on that. Is that available through blood or do we have to do, like, how would we check the CAG repeat? Well, we would have to have like a, a saliva sample okay. and that would have to be, right now, it's only available in labs like at um, Baylor Medical. There's two labs in the United States it's for f- severe uh, like uh, conditions of Kennedy disease right now, and it's kind of expensive. And I want to take that threshold out so that this uh, can be mapped. So obviously, you think, this is, you think this is an incredibly valuable um, number to know, um, just to understand someone's androgen sensitivity. And not only that, it, uh, another expansion on the same track is involved with increased risk for prostate cancer. And so I want it for two different reasons. I want to be able to look at what the uh, sensitivity I would expect to see and higher, more sensitive individuals theoretically would take a lower dose of testosterone and still have the same effects. And so this is one of the reasons why uh, testosterone therapy without this knowledge has to be tailored to the individual to treat symptoms and not specifically the numbers because it's going to vary from person to person. But with general average genetics, everyone responds across the board as long as they have a sufficient dose. But as far as uh, SNPs, uh, there's various SNPs uh, that are predictive of uh, not only deodinase enzymes that are involved with the conversion to active thyroid, uh, different deficiencies, different alterations in other endocrine axes uh, can lead to less of a response even with testosterone therapy because there's an underlying issue that's not that hasn't been resolved. And so uh, the things that I would look at specifically is diagnose one, diagnose two, the SHBG polymorphisms. I do have uh, several SNPs, probably 24 or 25 that I mapped out in uh, my own type of panel that I've used with uh, various people. Um, and what I'm eventually gonna do is uh, get those all into one thing that uh, so men can be screened for major issues that deal with the, not only the response to testosterone, but any other um, 
anything that would be predictive about their long-term health that's related to any hormones in the body. Fascinating. Um, this is exciting. That's, that's um, I think, really, really great a path to take on. Thank you. And I, I believe that uh, really testosterone replacement, high-end or, or better clinics are going to move into more precision medicine so that we can on, we can look at someone's genetics and, and know, well, they only have about 40% conversion of T4 to T3 in the tissues. Or uh, they have a genetic deficiency in SHBG. So how do we get that level back up? These things influence it influence the response to testosterone therapy. And um, it's just, I see this as the wave of the future, uh, but it's it's still, there's a cost burden even for clinics to do this because yeah. uh, it's still very expensive. Fascinating, Scott. We've only got a couple of minutes left. Uh, is there anything else specifically you think we should cover today that's, that's vital for our audience to know? The only thing that I would... Um, I, I think is meaningful would be to look at the um, the study that sounded the alarm on endocrine disruptors. Okay, yeah, I'd love to see that. Just so we're saying endocrine disruptors. You're referring to uh, things like phthalates and uh, you know basically plastics and, and pesticides and these things. Yes, yeah. and I firmly believe that endocrine disruptors and even the endocrine society. Uh, states the drastic effects of these uh, chemicals, and we can't get away from them. But this study, to get uh, back on track, um, by Travis and the Boston group, it's actually part of the uh, um, the men's aging study in Boston, and it's an ongoing perspective cohort. Uh, they enroll every ten years or so. And in two thousand seven, uh, Travis went back, and they looked at a sample of over fifteen hundred men between the ages of forty five to seventy nine years old. And that enrolled at different time points, time point one, two, three, and they still stayed in the cohort and they would stay, they're still in there uh, unless they die or they're lost to follow up. They looked at the measures of total testosterone and also free testosterone uh, between 1987 and 2004. And what they found was that the median testosterone level dropped almost 22% from 501 nanograms per deciliter to 391 nanograms per deciliter. And this equated to um, a 1.6% drop per year over the 15-year period. And after it was matched for age, it still remained at 1.2% per year. After every covariate in this study that is known to affect testosterone levels like disease, lifestyle factors, all of those were adjusted in the analysis. There still remained the variance for 1% a 1% drop that could not be explained. And this is a 1% drop per year. With the median free testosterone levels, this dropped by a whopping 45% from 237 nanograms per deciliter to 130 over that period. And this equated to a 1.4% drop per year when age was adjusted. But there was still, after every covariate in this study, lifestyle factor or health related diagnoses like diabetes and things like that after all those were adjusted there was still the variance that underpinned a 1.3 percent drop per year mm -hmm. and so today a 50 year old man based on this data has 22 percent lower testosterone levels than a 50 year old man 
uh, from 15 years ago. Right. And I believe this study is critical and it's very important. It's seminal uh, because these findings persisted even after uh, it was adjusted for the confounding factors. And what they concluded at the end of the study, I copied this directly over. The observed age match decline in serotestosterone level is due to some undocumented historical or contemporary influence, health-related or environmental, which manifests in observable age match differences in testosterone concentrations separated either by time of observation or by birth cohort. Yeah, and so we, we tie that to plastics? Plastics, um, phthalates, parabens. Yep. All those have agonistic effects for the beta estrogen receptor and antagonistic effects at the same time for the androgen receptor. And it's one of the reasons why I think that a lot of the uh, gender dys dysmorphia issues that we have now are predicated as in part by our exposure to endocrine disrupting chemicals, even in yep. utero. So there's been some people that suggested to me that you know, the military has, has this data, but they just won't release it because I mean, to release it would be catastrophic, right? People would, would um, one, there'd be massive uproar. Uh, just imagine what would happen if, if the world just realized that all these, all this confusion that's happening is, is due to our own doing. I mean, apparently it's been verified, but can't be released. Well, if, if I would invite anyone to go to the Endocrine Society website and look at the scientific statements that, that have been made. Yeah. These are definite, confirmed things that happen. Right. But there's no guidance on how uh, to deal with this. But, but to, to correlate it back to the gender shifts um, would be a, a very different thing. S saying that there's, there's a decrease in testosterone is one thing, but saying that that's going to be um, connected in any way to the gender blurring would be pretty controversial. Well, it's controversial, but it's something I've talked about for a long time. Um, if you understand the importance of how critical the time points are in ERO development, if there's a misconditioning of any of those hormones, like to dissolve the Wolfian duct or the uh, malaria duct, um, these chemicals have actually been confirmed in uh, the uh, placental fluid of pregnant women. Right. They're there, they're circulated around, and they activate the receptors. Right. And so um, it's one of the things that there's uh, there's data to support transgenerational effects, that these effects are carried from one generation to the next. But mechanistically, no, it's not It's it's not been uh, confirmed. Um, but stuff like that's never confirmed because it would be unethical to even do it. Yeah, and there was other one, another study that I found. So I did a, I did a um, course on testosterone a couple of years back. There's one study I found that showed uh, increased estrogen levels, uh, estrogen exposure in utero also decreased the size of the, the genitals in boys. So the the space, I guess, between the perineum and the tip of the penis became significantly decreased, which is, uh, you know, interesting. And I think that that one alone will, will be alarming to men to know that if your if your child or boy is exposed to elevated estrogens or, or these endocrine disruptors in utero would actually decrease the penis size. And that's just saying you're just becoming ultimately less of a man, right? And that what's so, you know, we know that testosterone levels have decreased, the, the genitals, are, the test testicles have decreased also. Crazy. It's fascinating stuff. But you know, it's also a, a flip side to that. When there's high androgen levels, 
uh, that can lead to major issues in fetal development. Huh. Um, that's why um, transdermal testosterone is contraindicated, really, with a man if uh, they're trying to conceive a uh, trying to conceive a child because. If that gets in the bloodstream and it transfers off of him uh, to his partner, that can have the deleterious effects uh, for the fetal development across the board. Dr. Howell, this has been eye-opening and enlightening and uh, incredibly informative. Sorry that we have to end it. I'd love to do it again. I'd love to continue the conversation, sure. uh, but but so much value and uh, hopefully the audience enjoyed it as much as I did. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Thanks, Scott. Where can our audience find more from you and where can they reach out if they want to work with you or, or your Optimize You team? Optimize You. The reason why I'm with Optimize You right now is I've worked with several substandard clinics, what we consider like T-mails and things like that. And what I was really impressed by is we have surgeons, we have psychiatrists, we have gynecologists, we have a full round of specialists that work uh, in these medical clinics. And we have a lot of different modalities, recovery modalities that are beyond hormones. And so it takes a lot for me to stand behind anything, but I really um, believe in what Optimize You is doing and the expertise of their clinicians. I really do. And I train them. So, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's Optimize You um, Centers. That's the website. Great. Thanks, Scott. I appreciate you. Thank you so much. That's a wrap, ladies and gents. Thank you very much for tuning into the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I know there's going to be a lot of questions about this one. There's going to be a lot of stuff. People say, oh, it's been, it's a little over my head. Go back, listen to it again. Um, start to understand the terminology because I know it's heavy at certain points. But at the end of the day, the consensus is, ladies and gents, that testosterone is not bad. Long-term use doesn't seem to be bad for most people uh, as long as you understand the fate. The primary goal here is, can I get my body healthy? Regardless if I'm taking testosterone or not, we always want to aspire for the most healthy version of ourselves so that the body actually uses testosterone the way it's meant to use. And we want to, in, in general, for most people, stay away from aromatase inhibitors and, and finasteride because they seem to have relatively negative implications for most, if not all, people, regardless of, well, let's, let's say this, talk to your endocrinologist, um, make sure they have uh, an understanding of the most up-to-date research and, and science. And if they don't, um, then maybe find a new one. Our podcast today is sponsored by by optimizers our great long-term sponsors optimizers.com slash muscle use the code muscle 10 to get hooked up have a great day don't forget to subscribe leave us a review i want to hear from you and lots more amazing podcasts coming at you in the weeks to come thank you so much for tuning into muscle intelligence if you enjoyed today's episode please be sure to share it with at least one person you know make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode this podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Bikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.